0: The church would be in unity around the Word of God. We would have a voice and a power that we can't comprehend. But we're so distracted. So many believers, so many of the remnant are pressed without measure right now. Mm -hmm. Satan's destroying families. Believers are losing everything they've had or worked for. People are betraying one another within and without the church. These are dark days. Mm -hmm. But the storm does pass by. Will. When we sung that hymn this morning, I was actually reminded of a few days ago, or uh, it was Friday, Eric and I took Bethany and McKenna and Jocelyn on a hike. Those young ladies had been begging me to take them on a hike, and I promised them I would, and we wanted to keep our word. So we went up to Grayson Highlands State Park, just over the state line in Virginia. It was a chance for Bethany and Eric to bag another state high point. I've unleashed monsters there, things that I've pursued in the past. I share them, and then these guys want to do it, too. So um, uh, we went up there, and we had a wonderful time, but the weather was very sketchy. And I unpacked my backpack and did one of the most foolish things that a hiker or a climber could ever do. I should know better. I took the things out of my pack, and I stuffed the hammock down in the bottom. And then for some reason, I forgot to put all the other stuff back in. So we get up there, the weather turns sour, and I don't even have a jacket. I've got a t-shirt, okay? I don't have a tarp. I don't have any of the things that you would want to have on you, knowing the weather and knowing that above 5,000 feet, you can get hypothermia any month of the year. So I was a little bit nervous. I did happen to have an umbrella in my bag, something I never carry when I go hiking. But the storms came in. And it was very strange because the sky would get suddenly dark. And there was even a period of brief hail and pouring down rain. And we had no choice but to just keep walking. There was nowhere to get sheltered. But a wave of storms came in as we entered the forest just below the summit of Mount Rogers. There's some open space up there. And we had to walk across a meadow, and there was some lightning that was somewhat scary. You don't want to be caught above out of the trees in a lightning storm in the mountains. And as we entered the forest, the girls were behind us, and I knew they would have to walk across that meadow, and I was a little bit nervous. But as we entered that forest and the cloud came over, it was almost instant that the forest, it was creepy. The forest was so thick that it went dark, like the dark of night. I mean, it was a darkness in the daytime you don't normally see. And it was a moment of peril at least in our minds. I was screaming at the girls, get in here, get in here, pick up the pace!" But in that short three-tenths of a mile from that darkness to the summit, it's like the storm came and it passed by. And when we arrived at the summit of Mount Rogers, it was a pristine blue sky. And the sun was piercing the trees and lighting the leaves, almost like fire. And we could actually sit there And enjoy a few minutes. The storm passed by. These storms will pass by. And that is our faith. In fact, by way of introduction today, I want to look at something that the Lord told Habakkuk the prophet. Because Habakkuk the prophet lived in a day in Israel's history, just prior to the Babylonian captivity, when everything was a mess, there seemed to be no justice and the righteous were being pressed without measure and he simply did not understand what was going on i go to these passages this passage because it's actually relevant to verse 5 in revelation 20 we fully got through verse 4 last week talking about the two companies of belief of believers the church or the tribulation saints that will have roles of governmental authority in the millennium. We get down to verse 5. But the rest of the dead, there are others besides the church and the tribulation saints that have a part and a place in this period of the kingdom. But the rest, other than the church and the tribulation saints, there's the rest. And of this rest, there are the dead and those that are still alive. But of the rest of the dead, live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the fourth time in Revelation 20 we see the number thousand years. The fourth time. There's no reason to think it means anything else. Till the thousand years were finished, this is the first resurrection. The first resurrection doesn't involve the rest of the dead. The rest of the dead, as I said last week, go all the way back to Cain, from Cain down to those who perish in the judgments written in this book, at least half the world's population. The rest of the dead include the rich man in Luke 16 who perished. It includes the man, the rich man Christ talked about that said, you know, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I'm going to tear down my barns and build more. And then Christ said, thou fool, today is, is your soul will be required. It includes the wicked down through the ages. It includes those who fall in the battle of Armageddon. It includes... Your lost loved ones who have died without Christ. It includes leaders, government authorities who perished without the Lord. It includes your friends who will die without Christ. Some that will never hear the gospel because we <clears throat> never spoke up and warned them. It includes those whose blood will be on our hands. At the judgment seat of Christ The rest of the dead live not Until the thousand years were finished You see the dead in hell Are in a giant holding cell There without fail So if Christ were to come today This day It would be at least A thousand and seven years Before the people in hell Would even have a trial before they even are able to confront or stand before their true accuser, before they even get a hearing with the judge, it would be at least a thousand and seven years. At least. That's troubling. That's troubling. It's a lot of people, the rest of the dead. A lot of people. We can't stomach this, That's what God's Word declares. Hell is real. And hell is just a holding cell. Imagine being charged with a crime and going to the county jail and having to sit there for years before you could actually answer for your charges and get your sentence. Your, 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 your sentence. I mean, the waiting game. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Torment. In torment, the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell. That same hell is alive on the road and it's never satisfied. It's never <clears throat> full. Proverbs in chapter 27 says that hell is never full. Hell and death are never satisfied, just like our eyes. Our eyes are never satisfied. I love to go back peaks, that's one of my favorite activities, but I'm never satisfied. I could climb all the state high points, all the southern sixers, all the southern fivers, the highest mountains in the world, and I'll never ever be satisfied. That's why Mount Everest has seen one of its busiest tourist seasons this year in Nepal. And it's like a circus up there in a way that's never been. It's like like a line waiting to get into a roller coaster. And a lot of people have died because of because the eyes of men are never satisfied. They've always got to do something else and something else and something else. It's hell is just like that. Never satisfied. It's full. We're told in Habakkuk that he gathers unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all peoples. The rest of the day. heaped into hell. But this is couched within a a little bit longer passage. Turn to Habakkuk chapter chapter 2. That's how you pronounce it. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehum, or Naphim. Habakkuk. Chapter 2. The prophet is complaining. This is about 607 B.C. About two years before the great battle of Carchemish when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians overthrow the king of Assyria and the king of Egypt. And then they come in and take captive and, and assert their will in the land of Israel. Okay, Remember the king of Egypt is going up to meet Nebuchadnezzar at Carchemish and on the way King Josiah tries to meddle with it and ends up dying at a young age. The mercy of God actually. But the prophet sees the things coming, the political winds blowing, the chaos, the destruction and the impending doom of his country, just like we see today. And he cries out to the Lord, Lord, why, verse 3 of chapter 1, dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Is this not what we see all around us both within and without the church. Those that raise up strife and contention and divide churches. Therefore the law, verse 4, is sly, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceed. Is that not our vexing today? Are we not thus vexed? Just like Lot, Lot dwelling in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophet cries out to God. He doesn't understand. Lord, why won't you execute righteousness? Why won't you throw down these enemies? Why won't you do something? And then in chapter 2, then he decides, you know what? I'm going to stand by and I'm going to wait and see what the Lord does. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He knew he would be reproved because he knew in his flesh he was in despair. It's all right for us to go to God and cry out to him and to complain to him and to express our frustration, but it's not all right for us to despair, to fall into cynicism. That should not be. And when we do, we need to wait and see what the Lord says. And the Lord answered me and said, "Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that it. So the Lord said, "Write this down and make it plain, and let it let him run and publish it. For the vision is yet for a time, for an appointed time; but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it." Because it will surely come. It will not tear. In other words, the things that were vexing the spirit of the prophet, God said, write them down and wait. Because what you desire will come. It will come. Justice will come. The promises made to the nation will be fulfilled. These things will come. The storm will pass by. Write it down and wait for to despair is worldly. To wait for the Lord in our vexation is righteous. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. The righteous live by faith. In that context, faith is to wait upon the Lord. To believe His Word and to trust it despite what you see going on all around us. To wait for it. That's the essence of faith in the Old Testament. It's the same essence of faith in the New. The just, Paul quotes this passage in Romans, shall live by faith. Not even our faith. His faith. Yea, also... Because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. This is talking about the soul which is lifted up. These people for whom the prophet had contempt and desired to be justice, desired to seek justice, serve for righteousness. These are just like hell and death in their desires. They're never satisfied and they gather unto themselves all nations and all people just like hell does. Just like hell. But they will not succeed. Neither will hell. Hell will not succeed in gathering every soul into it. Because there's been a body of souls elect from the foundation of the world that will be the saints of the Lord God and will escape these things because Jesus has conquered hell. It's a conquered foe. Oh, He'll gather many, but not all. He'll gather from all nations, but not all people in all nations. And neither will the wicked be able to uh, uh, obtain all of their desires they seek, even though it appears that way. And then God goes on to say to the prophet, with regard to these wicked entities, Babylon being one of them, you're concerned about. Verse 8, Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land and of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth evil covetousness to his house that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. The sins of those that seem to be in in power have not escaped the Lord. Not escaped him. For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Despite the fact it looks like evil reigns today in our country, it has not escaped God. And woe to those societies that establish themselves with blood. Our towns have been built upon the blood of the unborn in this country, and this has not escaped God. You desire like the prophet, O Lord, that Thou wouldst run in the heavens and come down? Wait for it. It's coming. Don't despair. Mm -hmm. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in... Is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? Look, it's God's judgment upon the wicked to allow them to think... They are succeeding. Mm-hmm. To allow them to think they have all the power. To allow them to think they are in control. It's of God to allow this. So that when the judgment comes, it's all the more final. It's all the more efficacious. And the wicked will have no excuse before the front. And then verse 14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters come to the sea. This is the millennium here in verse 14. It's the millennium. Despite everything we see and the things that must happen and the things the prophet knew would happen, that he saw judgment and justice falling in the streets, truth in the streets, no judgment anywhere, despite all of that, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Wait for it. Wait the same way we're called to do the same thing. To take that vision, the things we're preaching today, to run with it, to proclaim it, to wait for it, and not to despair. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be angry at the state of our nation. It doesn't mean you shouldn't speak out. It doesn't mean you shouldn't call evil, evil, and good, good. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be willing to to fight and lose your life for truth. What it does mean is we should not despair. It's wrong for us to despair. Angry, yes, there's a righteous anger. Frustration, yes, take it to the Lord, but not despair. To despair means the storm's never going to pass. God's not going to do what He says. He is. He is. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord here in the millennium. And hell will be filled with all nations. Because it's never satisfied. Yet not all people of all. Isaiah says, or I'm sorry, this passage, let me not get ahead of myself. As the soul that is lifted up has done to others, it will be done to him. And hell is picture of that. So, those that falsely accuse the righteous, that falsely accuse the president, that falsely accuse the saints, as that they've done to others will be done unto them, whether it's in this life or the next. Because hell is never full, and judgment come. Rest assured, as angry as you get when you have to walk into a store or in, 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 in some shop and they've got CNN or ABC or whatever, NBC on the TV. You've got to look at the, the rotten jungle fruit on the television. You've got to look at the scum of the earth peddling their lies, peddling their slanders trying to deceive you, when you got to look at them, when you got to hear it, rest assured that as they are doing to others with their terrorist activity, it will be done to them. They will answer for their crimes. Let's wait for Hell is enlarged, Isaiah 4, 5, and she has opened her mouth without measure. Serious business. Enlarged. Many will fall therein, and there they will live not again until the thousand years are fulfilled. It's not just you die and you go to hell, and you're a spirit down there and you're having a big party. It's not that at all. You wake up in a holding cell, and you're stuck there for a long, long time before you even are raised out and given a new body and get to stand in judgment. And then after that is the eternal lake of fire that has no end. (laughs) Held without fail through the millennium. Revelation 20 verse 5. The rest here are the rest versus the raptured resurrected saints. The church and the resurrected tribulation saints. The tribulation saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation and given new bodies just like we received at the rapture prior to the tribulation. The rest are the others, not the resurrected, not the sanctified. Of the dead is the rest of the dead. So that's a subcategory of the rest here in the, in the language of the verse. So there is a rest and that some of them are dead, most of them are dead. And some are yet alive. This indicates, this phrase of the dead indicates that there are others besides the church and the tribulation saints that yet remain alive. There are those that will survive in their earthly bodies the tribulation. There are those. In fact, the scriptures shed light on this. Turn to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, verse 6. This is in the context of verse 1. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down. This is in the context of God's judgment. Verse 6. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth We live under the curse. As of yet, that curse hasn't devoured the earth. But by the end of the tribulation, it's completely devoured everything. And they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. What happens? Zechariah 14, when Christ puts His foot on the Mount of Olives, it says exactly that. His judgment is His enemies are burned. Their eyes literally melt out of their sockets. Their tongue literally melts out of their mouth and they just burn like chaff and ashes. Not a whole lot different than what you see in that old movie Raiders of the Lost Ark when those Nazis opened up the Ark of the Covenant and not a whole lot different than what you see at the end of uh, one of those Avengers movies when they start just disappearing, consumed as ash. You know, Hollywood's controlled by demons. And the demons know the Word of God. And a lot of the vision or, or, or ideas that Hollywood writers get in like <laughs> the movies, they actually come from God's Word. Not because they believe or fear God's Word, but because the demons living inside of them know His Word well. When the demons followed Christ on this earthly ministry, they actually preached some pretty powerful sermons. This is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. They knew the truth. But it says the uh, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men left. So there are people left. There are few, but they are left. If you go to Zechariah 14 where you learn about this judgment and what it looks like at Armageddon, we've touched on this chapter before. It tells us in verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So there are nations left that endure. And part of the millennial law, part of millennial tribute will be to come up and worship the Lord each year and celebrate with Jerusalem. Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles. Later on you see that those nations who refuse to do that, and there will be those that do, there will be consequences. But there are nations that are led. Men and nations. And then when we go to the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, that's not the final judgment. That said, that's talking about when when the Messiah comes back and sits upon the throne of His glory. This is the the millennial kingdom. The nations are gathered before Him. They're separated like sheep and goats. And dependent upon those those nations that remain, dependent upon how they treated Israel in a period of terrible holocaust during the tribulation, they'll be allowed to remain in the millennial kingdom or they'll be destroyed. That's the way I understand this parable. And so there are sheep nations that are allowed to enter into that millennial kingdom. When I look at Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, it obviously has spiritual application to how we live our life and what we claim. But these are the Messiah's Nuremberg trials. Okay? The enemy is defeated, just like Germany in World War II. Then what happened? Those that remain were tried. Those that survived were put on trial. Some were executed. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats are his Nuremberg trials. And there are those that are destroyed and those that are allowed to remain. So there are people that remain alive in their natural bodies. Okay? In fact, there are four unresurrected groups who live and continue (coughs) in the millennium. These are people that have a a sinful nature. Now, they won't have the devil deceiving them, but they still have that Adamic nature. They will live. They will have children. Some will die. But things will be different, not like the lifespans of today. And I'll talk about that later. But there are four groups of unresurrected saints. You have the, the, the uh, are not saints, but the people. You have the church and the tribulation saints and the remnant of Israel, uh, the Old Testament saints and all that who participate. And then you have, uh, that they are sanctified and as the angels in heaven, like Jesus said in the kingdom. Then you have the unresurrected survivors that make up the subjects of the kingdom in this earth. Four groups. Number one, those who don't receive the mark and somehow escape Antichrist. They just don't get caught or killed. It's that simple. There will be people who don't receive the mark, not because they love Jesus and believe God, but because they hate the Antichrist and they're just rebellious at heart. And when people tell you to do something... They just don't want to do it. And they're they're willing to risk their lives for that. There are those like that. Daniel chapter 11 tells us this. Daniel chapter 11, 41 and 42. He shall enter also into the glorious land. This is the Antichrist. And many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So in other words, there are people that escape him. There are those who don't receive the mark and just don't get caught or killed. Okay? They survive. Secondly, there are those nations... Who helped the Jews during their terrible holocaust, the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the essence of Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Those nations who survived and persecuted the Jews who refused to help like we see the land of Edom and Moab. We've talked about that. There will be Arab peoples that actually rise up and help help protect Israel during the tribulation, believe it or not. We've talked about Revelation chapter 12 what John sees with the the dragon and the place of refuge in the desert. There are those nations who will persecute the Jews that don't help and they'll get capital punishment. But there are those that do and are allowed to continue. Thirdly, there's the Jewish remnant. The Jewish people that survive. Now you have the 144,000 witnesses who are sealed And have a special role. And they go out and preach to the world. Even to their own people. You have God sending His two witnesses to Jerusalem to preach during the days of Antichrist. And even the people there of the land hate that. And celebrate their death. And fear when their resurrection and rapture. But there will be a Jewish remnant that survives. Isaiah 6 verse 13 tells us it will be a tenth. Zechariah chapter 13, eight, 9 says it will be a third of those living in the land, or those who were driven from the land. So, we've talked about these verses before. Approximately a third of what is living in Israel today is approximately a tenth of the Jewish population around the world. So these numbers agree with each other. So there'll be a Jewish remnant. One tenth. One out of every ten Jewish people alive during the time of Jacob, as uh, trouble will survive. One out of ten—that's it. There's a Holocaust coming that makes the Nazi Holocaust look like a campfire, and I don't think the Jewish people understand that. We've got to warn them. We've got to warn them that they might escape, because even if they're alive during this time, very few will survive. To Only a third living in the land. All of these things that have been built up give us encouragement in the modern state because it showed God's word coming to pass. But it's being built to be destroyed. It'll have to all be taken away before Israel wakes up. Because they think they've done it. This is all what the scripture says. Isaiah chapter 11 touches on the Jewish remnant. It tells us, When Messiah takes over that He will open up a highway and uh, He will assemble back the outcasts of Israel. Those that have been driven out the diaspora, they'll be gathered back. We've talked about these verses. The Lord will destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea and He'll open up a highway from Assyria and bring back those that have been scattered. So you've got the Jewish remnant. Even the tribe of Dan will be brought back. In Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000 witnesses, there is no representative from the tribe of Dan. Dan is the tribe that led Israel into idolatry. Dan is the tribe from which I believe will come Antichrist. Dan is the tribe that set the stage for the wickedness in the book of Judges. She has no representation, or he has no representation amongst the hundred witnesses, yet he has land allotted to him in the millennial kingdom. So even from the tribe of Dan there will be some that survive and are gathered back. And then the fourth group, you've got those who don't receive the mark and who actually escape. You've got those nations who help the Jews. You've got the Jewish remnant. And then finally, you've got children of Born to these who will grow up with that old Adam's nature. So of these three groups that survive, they will have children in the millennium, And these children will have children. And these generations will grow up with the old Adam's nature that we're born with. There won't be a devil to deceive them, but they'll still have that nature. It's interesting there are some passages that make this very clear. Zechariah chapter 8. The prophet Zechariah has a lot to say about the kingdom the millennial millennium. The kingdom. Zechariah chapter 8 verses 3 through 5. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is the millennium. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, this is in the millennium, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing Streets thereof. The words here, boys and girls, these are small children mm-hmm. playing in the streets. So they've been born. Isaiah sixty-five, mm-hmm. verse twenty. This is talking about. In verse seventeen, God says, "Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth." and the former shall not be remembered and come into mind. I'm going to one day create a new heaven and a new earth. But, verse 18, this means he's going back to another subject. So the verses that follow aren't talking about the new heaven and the new earth. But for now, this is something I'm going to do ultimately. But for now, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I created. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no be more be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. This is not the new heavens and the new earth because there's no death. There's no death and sin. There is a new heavens and a new earth, but he changed the subject. But for now, rejoice in what I'm going to do in this present creation before I'm done with it. I will create a new heavens and a new earth, but don't be looking only to that. Rejoice in what I'm going to do here first. This earth, Purpose is not fulfilled. The millennium has to be fulfilled. And I'll explain that later. But here in the millennium, you'll have an old man that has not filled his days. That's going to live a lot older than he normally would. And you have a child that when he dies 100 years old, he's considered a child. So there are children in the millennium. One who's 100 is considered a child. Ezekiel 47.22 speaks of these things as well. It's talking about... The last chapters of Ezekiel talk about the land, how it will be divided during the millennium. It talks about the millennial temple, the city of Jerusalem, which is not the same as what John sees in Revelation 21. It talks about the prince, the Messiah, Israel's chief place amongst the nations. God revealed these things to the prophet to tell the people when they had learned that Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians, people in captivity. These things were given as a comfort and an encouragement that God wasn't done with Jerusalem. But in Ezekiel 47, verse 22, And it shall come to pass that ye shall divide it, that's the land, by lot for an inheritance among you, and to the strangers the immigrants that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. And they shall be in the years born in the country among the children of Israel, for they shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. So there will be strangers dwelling in the land of Israel, Gentiles, who will beget children during the land. And guess what? Here we have... In this verse we have God's peace plan For Israel and the land Man has its ideas You know why President Netanyahu Was not able to secure A coalition And now Israel is going to have To have new elections in September You know why Because God The things God has Purposed for Israel Will not happen Until he's ready So it's just like the people that tried to arrest Jesus. They never could do it until the time was right. He always escaped. He always walked right to the ground. Even when they tried to throw him off the cliff in Nazareth. Because the time wasn't right. When you see these things, you realize the time wasn't right. Our government was supposed to unveil this peace plan right after the elections. Now it can't do so. Because there has to be new elections. These things are being delayed. Because God has a purpose and a time scale that He will operate by. So I just find that interesting. It's not time at this moment for this quote-unquote peace plan that will fail to arise. But God does have His own peace plan, and here it is. And it will be executed in the millennium. And guess what? It's a one-state solution. Not a two-state solution. There will be no east and west Jerusalem in the millennial capital. In fact, we're going to see that the millennial city of Jerusalem actually includes east and west Jerusalem and an area much larger than the city today. But God's solution is a one-state solution. Not a one-state solution whereby Jews possess the land and treat Gentiles terribly and don't allow them to come in, but a one-state solution whereby Jews The predominant population and the Gentile minorities live in peace. And the Gentile minorities are able to beget children. And they shall be just like citizens that are Jewish. And they will have inheritance amongst the tribes of Israel. That's God's peace plan. God's peace plan isn't to kick the Arab out and throw them to the curb. It's to have Jews and Gentiles dwelling one with another. And even the Gentiles to have inheritance. That's God's one state solution. Man can never bring peace to the Middle East. But God will. Jesus the Messiah will. And it will involve the big game of children. So there will be children that are born. And they, they grow up. In the millennium, it's very simple. We're going to talk about some of the law. But it's very simple. The law will come down from the king. It will actually be simple law. Israel will keep the law that was given to it in the Old Testament down to the minutest of details because she must do so. And with regard to the nations and those that are born and live, obedience to the king brings blessing. Disobedience brings consequences. It's that simple. That's simple. So there will be those that live with the old Adam's nature, they don't have to devil the devil deceiving them that will live and have children. And those children will grow up. A thousand years a long time. If you go back today, what's the world's population? Seven billion? If you go back a thousand years, just a thousand years, the population was significantly. I don't think the world reached a billion people until the twentieth century. I may be wrong. It might I think it was the twentieth century. So there were there was a fraction of the number of people living on this planet today than are today. So a thousand years is plenty of time to build up a significant population. Especially when people will actually live to the ages they did before the flood. We'll actually see that in scripture. But the rest of the dead live not again until a thousand years were finished. The dead that die prior to this time won't have a part in this. Some will survive. And out of them will come the subjects. Of course, these will rebel. at the end. We'll see that. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection means there must be a second, at least the second resurrection. So there must at least be two, if there's a first. The first resurrection takes place before the millennium. John chapter 5 is called the resurrection of life. Daniel refers to it as an awakening to everlasting life. Timothy, Paul refers to it in 2 Timothy 4 as as the, the judgment of the quick. They're referred to as the quick at Christ's appearing. And then in Acts 24, Paul refers to it as the resurrection of the just. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus calls it the resurrection not of the dead, from the dead. So the first resurrection is not just of the dead, it's from the dead. Actually, I'll put it this way. The first resurrection is from the dead. Those that are raised in the first resurrection are resurrected from the power and the grasp of dead. They escape it. It's a resurrection of life. It brings everlasting life. It brings quickness to a new body. And it happens at Christ's appearing. For the church at His appearing of the rapture. For the tribulation saint, at his appearing in the second coming, a resurrection from the dead. Verse six: Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Why? Because on such the second dead have no power. Blessed are those that have part in the first resurrection, because. The first resurrection is the escape from the second resurrection and death. Blessed are those, blessed means what it says, blessed. Holy means sanctified or set apart. Those appointed to the first resurrection are set apart by God from the foundation of the world. Set apart. The church, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation. Saints, it's what is referred to in farming terminology, the first fruits of the resurrection, the Old Testament saints, with Christ in his resurrection, the harvest of the resurrection, the rapture, those that are dead in Christ and those that are alive and remain in the church, and then the gleanings, the things that are missed in the harvest that are left over, the tribulation saints. On these groups, the second death has no power. We can hope by our preaching today of both Jew and Gentile that it might result in adding souls to the harvest. But in the times we live in, we can also hang on to hope that perhaps, if not the harvest, our preaching will sow seeds that bear fruit and add souls to the gleanings. I don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish that on anyone to have to live in a dime that's coming. But our sowing can have uh, bear fruit both now and then. And I take hope in that with, with our, our outreach to the Israelis, to the Jewish people. that maybe something that's said today. Though it be not heeded, and though they not come into the church, will be remembered during the time of Jacob's trouble. And they'll be gleanings, gleaning gleams. On these the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Here we have thousand. Number five. No reason to think it means anything else. Priests and kings with the Messiah. What we've read about in verse four in resurrected bodies, as the angels in heaven, not married or given in marriage, not consumed with the things of this world, righteousness in God, not even beset by the old nature, resurrected and sanctified to live and reign. This is what Peter is referring to specifically in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says in verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Peter is quoting the Old Testament Psalms about Messiah. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of God. I believe this is Psalm 118. Okay, I thought so. Psalm 118. Those that reject Him, He's going to be the stone of stumbling and a cheap cornerstone. A stone of stumbling, verse 8, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, where, whereunto they also were appointed. Those that were dis, are disobedient and stumbled were appointed just like those of but you, that is the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. These things are for the kingdom, and in this life we are strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a reference to our royal priesthood, our existence as a holy, governing nation in the land. These things ought to motivate us not to live here as if this is our home. It's not. Let's don't be distracted by fleshly lust. We are strangers and pilgrims. We may love our country and we may be thankful for it. But at the end of the day, America's not our home. We're just pilgrims. America can't provide for us what the kingdom of Christ can. It can't give us that safety and security and that righteousness. And even our founding fathers knew this. They knew it. They knew it was but an experiment. And they knew it had the potential to fail. Nevertheless, they tried. And they established it with warning. Warning that we will not listen to them today. There's a first resurrection. Many that see the first death are raised in the first resurrection. But there's a second resurrection that leads to the second death. The second death is eternal. And the second death is what is referred to in John 5... As the resurrection of damnation. Jesus is talking here in John chapter 5, verse 29. And he's talking. uh, Marvel not, verse 28. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And some shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. That's at the rapture. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. That's the great white throne. Daniel calls it an awakening to shame and everlasting contempt. Awakening to everlasting life, but also an awakening to shame and everlasting contempt. Contempt here means abhorrence. Isaiah 66, 24 talks about the burning of hell being visible and existing for all eternity. And it's a a scene of abhorrence, a reminder for all eternity, even in the new heaven and the new earth, of God's justice. It's what Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 4 as the dead at His kingdom, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing, His rapture, and His kingdom. It's the resurrection, Paul says, of the unjust. Acts 24, 15. It's the resurrection to stand before the great white throne, which we see a little later in this chapter. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And it's a resurrection not from the dead, but unto the second death verse 14 of chapter 20. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. Not hell, but God's penitentiary. The lake of fire. In hell, your soul remains and is tormented. In the lake of fire, you have a new body that endures, and there's a physical and a spiritual torment for all of eternity. That's the second death. And guess what? Those that part of the first resurrection, the second death has no power. No power. Revelation 20, verse 7. Those that have part of the first resurrection, they'll be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of this prison. When I look at this passage in the original language, and I'm going to verify this before I speak hastily. Yeah, I thought so. The word used here in the original language that is translated as is expired means accomplished or fulfilled. It expires not because or for some random reason but because it has served its purpose. It accomplishes something. And so when the thousand years have accomplished what they exist to do we're told that Satan will be loosed out of his prison for a time. This word here translated expires necessitates a literal understanding of the millennium. You can't spiritualize it and throw it out there as some pie-in-the-sky reference to some spiritual universal truth. The word used here, expired, necessitates a literal understanding. You can't separate it. It wouldn't make any sense. How does the millennial reign of Christ and the saints. What does it fulfill? What does it actually accomplish? Why? Why must we go through this? Why doesn't God just judge the wicked and then create a new heaven and a new earth and put down, put sin out, destroy the wicked, destroy the devil? There's no Satan being loosed out of prison. There's no rebellion. Why must we go through all that, God? Why can't we just wipe the slate clean and start over? Like many in Reformed theology teach, oh, there's a general judgment, God's just going to start it. No, 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 no. He has a purpose. And the question is, why? Why must there be a millennial reign here in this creation? I believe it's pretty simple. It's the same reason that Israel had to be led captivity for 70 years. God could have thrown them out for 100 years. God could have thrown them out for 20 years. Why was it 70 years? Because Israel never allowed the land to rest. They were supposed to give the land its Sabbath rest, and they never did. Mm-hmm. And so, until the land had fulfilled its Sabbaths, Israel was thrown into captivity and could not return. The earth must have its Sabbath rest. It must. With the fall, sin came into the world. Man was forced to work and toil, sweat of his brow, and there must be the curse, working and toiling, and then there must be rest. God demonstrates this in the creation. Mm Isaiah 14, verse 7, sheds some light here. This is in the context of Lucifer's fall from heaven. And the time when that takes place, pointing prophetically. It says in verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. This is after Israel is given rest. This is after the king of Babylon has ceased. This is after the fall of Adam. After the imprisonment of Satan That we see later in the chapter The whole earth is at rest God is a God of order God is a God of consistency The scriptures reveal that That's why in the church We're to do all things decently and in order Not just random gathering To hear good preaching And random worship that takes up the whole day And then the preaching We're supposed to do things decently and in order Okay? Because God is a God of order and he's consistent. When God created this world, he worked for six days and then he rested upon the seven. That's where we get our concept of a week. Do you realize that our week, our seven-day week, that is observed in all cultures around this world? All cultures around this world have a seven-day week. They may have different names for the days. Sombar, Brutbar, Bihibar, like the Nepalis. They may have different calendars of different years. The Nepali calendar has us in the year like 2073. The Jewish calendar has us in the year 5779. We're in the year 2019 AD. But we've all got a seven-day week. There's always a seven-day week. The year, the 365-day year has astronomical value. It's it's necessitated by the sun. The months have lunar value. But there is no astronomical value or explanation for the seven-day week apart from God. There's no explanation for it. There's no motions in the heavens that yield this seven-day period. There are those that determine year and month, but not the week. And yet the week is observed by all cultures. The only explanation for the seven-day week is God. It's almost as if it's the Creator's handprint on the heart of man. Evolution can't explain. it's. There's no, there's no explanation for it apart from God and His creation. Think about the history of the world. Since the fall of man, it's been approximately 6,000 years of toil, work, bloodshed, war, from the fall all the way to the binding of Satan, followed by what I believe are 1,000 years of Sabbath rest. God's plan and purpose for this present creation mirrors what He demonstrated in the creation Mirrors. The earth must have her rest. Just like Israel had to have its rest in the land. 6,000 years of toil and work and bloodshed. The earth must have her rest. That's the essence really of what I believe Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8, when he says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, whether God judges the wicked today or a thousand years from now, it's all the same. It's all said and done. But similarly, as a day was to God when He created the world, so is a thousand years when it comes to God's judgment on this world. So as a day was a day to God in its creation, so is a thousand years in its fulfillment. I believe this is referencing the purpose for this created world. This fulfillment. And that's why the millennium is expired or fulfilled. Does it mean a day is not a day? This passage is not teaching us a day is not a day, and that God took a thousand or million years to create the world on the sixth day doesn't mean that at all. The earth must rest before the Lord is finished with it. Peter goes on to talk about his finishing with the planet. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord can be used to reference the rapture, the tribulation, of the millennium, and God's ultimate destruction of this world when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But the day the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, heat and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in our holy conversation in Godliness? Looking for the dissolving of all these things and a, and a new creation wherein the love of righteousness on summer We shouldn't be clinging to earthly things, number one. No cleaning. But the earth, before she's destroyed and melted and God creates a new heaven and a new earth, must enjoy her Sabbath rest. Isaiah, I mean Hebrews, tells us in verse chapter four, verse nine, that there yet remaineth a rest unto the people of God. There remains a rest, not for not only for the earth, but for the people of God, and that rest is it is uh, that that rest is necessary for this present creation before God starts over. When I think about amillennialism and post people that teach this stuff may as well be deaf mutes when it comes to understanding the Scriptures. A premillennial understanding of God's plan and purpose, whereby the earth, uh, Christ comes to liberate the earth and then sets up a kingdom for a thousand years. That is the only sane, intelligent, and reasonable approach That this earth is wicked. It's getting worse and worse. Man can't fix it. Christ will have to return to fix it. He'll set up a literal kingdom and literally fulfill the promises made to the fathers. And then when those things are fulfilled, then the earth is destroyed and God creates a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That really is the only sane, intelligent, and reasonable approach to the New Testament or the Old Testament and it's a God-centered approach. Mm -hmm. Not man-centered. I'm going to stop there today. I wanted to explain a little bit and we'll just have to wait until the end of the summer. If we look at the biblical chronology... We can reasonably date the creation of the world to 4004 B.C. based upon our present calendar. I actually taught about the creation chronology many, many years ago. I've got a whole series of notebooks for my sermon notes. Preaching here at New Testament Christian Fellowship. It's in the very first one. But when you think about 4004 B.C. to 2019, you've got around 6,023 years. So if these things about the earth's Sabbath rest are true, what's the problem here? What's going on? And I actually want to explain that a little bit. I'll give you a little food for thought. Understand that the work and the toil and the trial and the tribulation and the sweat did not begin with creation. It began with the fall of man. It began when the title deed of the earth was handed over to Satan And then it ends with Satan's binding. That is your 6,000 years of history. What What we do know is that Adam did not give birth to Seth until he was 130 years old. So that means he was probably maybe 100 years old when Cain and Abel were born. Maybe a little older. Let's say he was 80 years old. Well, we don't know how long he was alive before the fall. I mean, they could have been alive for 50 or 60 years before the fall. And then their children were born, and then he was 130 when Seth was born. So there's a period of time between the creation and the fall that we don't know how long it was. It was probably within the first 100 years. And so naturally... Uh, there's some years in play here and just because if we believe the biblical chronology which I think the scriptures establish nothing's late nothing's late at all we just don't know when the fall happened we're only 6,023 years from the creation about the fall so (coughs) these things seem to be taught in scripture with regard to the earth's Sabbath rest and I don't think anything's violated. what I do believe And we're going to talk about this next time is when we look at the Jewish calendar, we look at some different things and some dates people have said over the years why the Jewish calendar today is at 5779. What we can be very, very, very assured of is that we're only talking about decades. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about centuries. Mm -hmm. And it's close, even at the doors, Mm -hmm. as Jesus said. I'll end with this. We've gotten through... Uh, Revelation 20 verse 7 At the end of the thousand years Satan will be loose I want to talk about When we we resume at the end of summer I want to get into some of the the characteristics And the traits of the millennial kingdom With regard to the city of Jerusalem With regard to the division of the land The type of government um, Different things that are happening why there is a temple, why there are animal sacrifices in the millennium. I also want to talk about where is the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21. What makes it different from Jerusalem in the millennium and what part does it play and what I believe transcends both the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. So we'll talk about all that before I actually get into the rebellion that happens at the end of the millennium great white throne judgment. So it'll be a little while before we get out of chapter 20, but these are interesting things that no one ever wants to talk about. <clears throat> Everybody wants to spiritualize the end of Ezekiel because they have a reaction and say, oh, there will never be sacrifices in the millennium. No way. I can't happen." Well, yeah, there are. And it tells us exactly why there are. So it's worth touching these things that so many people are afraid to look at. And it's worth looking at the calendar. But just rest assured, between now and the next time I'm with you, that the things we're talking of are close. They're on the horizon. In Matthew chapter 24, we can't know the day. We can't know the hour. But we can know the season. Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is not. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things—things things Jesus said—signal that the end of time, I mean, the end of, I mean, signal His coming. When you see all these things, know that it is near, even. Guys, it's at the doors. We know the season we're here. These things aren't far. My, my Jewish friend who's disabled that I visited with a couple of weeks ago said it this way. Jesus the Messiah is in the hallway. His footsteps are coming down the hall. He's not at the door, but he's in the hallway. I think he's right. These... And guess what? To have a part in them for good and not for evil is to have a part in the first resurrection. And my friends, to have a part in the first resurrection can't be obtained through works. Can't be obtained through church attendance. Can't be obtained through wealth or influence or political capital. It can only be attained, obtained like what was said there in that passage from Habakkuk we read at the beginning. The just shall live by His faith. Amen. To be righteous and to have a part in the first resurrection is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you kids wonder what you got to do to be saved. There were people that asked Jesus in the book of John, What must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, This is the work of God. Not going to the temple, not going to church, not being a good boy or a good girl, although good fruit follows from this world. This is the work of God, that we believe on Him whom God has sent. That's what it is to be saved. Not to believe about Him, but to believe on Him, Jesus. He suffered, He died and was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And therefore God calls all men to repent, and to believe on the one whom He has sent. Who is Jesus to you? Is He the one God sent? Is He the King of the universe to you? Is He the coming King? Is He the one that paid the price for your sins on the cross and proved that God accepted that sacrifice when He rose from the dead? Is He that to you? Is it Him you're trusting? That's what it is to be saved. Is that simple? Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this time of feasting and fellowship around Your Word. I know it's run a little long today. I know we're stopping for a time in the middle of a chapter. But Lord, we're content with these things. We pray You give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that as the season is close, as the fig tree is sprouting leaves, that we would be ready, Lord, that we would be as pilgrims in this world and abstain from fleshly lusts that we would be those who preach the gospel and that we would trust and wait for the storm to pass because we know it will pass. We know your word is true. Forgive us, Lord, if we have despaired in our vexation. Lord, I pray that you will give every person in this room an understanding of the work of God, which is to believe on Him whom God sent. Give that understanding to our children and draw them to yourself and help us be faithful to teach them and to show these things in our home because they're never ever ever going to find it in the world. Have mercy upon your bride, the church. She's very weak. She's beset with internal strife and struggle. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and use us before it's too late. Bless our food and our fellowship, Lord, that you're going to enjoy We lift up those who are not among us. And until we're gathered again around this book, We trust that you will guide our steps, give us words to say, and open door of utterance in our spheres of influence over the things uh, about which we've been in Jesus, the Messiah.